Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours on a Saturday. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion, and our second hour is general discussion on Saturdays. And so we are, uh, you may notice that the color is a little different, the resolution's a little sharper. Uh, on Saturdays, we test uh, the 5.1, um, and uh, this is the last day we'll do it for a couple weeks because we are moving the kit next week. So um, so anyway, so that's going to be, uh, we'll, we'll be kind of moving things around at that point. Um, but uh, yeah, so the, um, uh, if you have questions, you can go ahead and throw those into Makana. If you make sure to vote on the questions because there's a bunch of questions in there already and your votes matter. Uh, they help us order what we're going to, you know, we spend a little bit more time on the front hour, the, the front half of the hour than we do on the second half of the hour on each question. So uh, if you ask those questions early, um, we'll, we'll dig into them a little deeper and we know that those are important to you. So make sure to vote on the questions. Uh, you can also use this little QR code right here. And um, this, uh, you can use the QR code um, and, uh, or you can just go to askofficehours.global and um, and ask those questions as well. And you can keep that 24-7. Anytime a question comes to you, uh, you can use that URL to throw those into the into a queue and then we bring those queues into our system. So, um, so go ahead and uh, throw those questions in. Let's go jump into the first question. Mitch, what do we got? Thank you, Alex. First in, Khalid Ajumaya from Hassa, Saudi Arabia. Hello, Office Hours. What do you think of the Sennheiser MKH8050 Super Cardioid Microphone for Zoom meetings in an open office environment? Thank you, Jeffrey. I think it's a pretty decent microphone. I'm assuming you, you want to capture the whole room. Uh, this is a this is a directional microphone. So what you'd want to do is, uh, if if anybody speaks, they need to be in a in a certain range. Uh, but uh, I mean, it's I think it's a little overkill for a Zoom room. But you know, uh, especially when it, if it's not doing anything like uh, music production or anything like that. So, but uh, yeah, it's a pretty good microphone. You can never go too far on a microphone, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I think that we, we've had people in here with U87, so I think that that's 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 a proper, very very good. Uh, well, Mitch, you you have a U87, but you're not bring, you're not using it for the show. We don't know why. We don't know why you're not using it for the show. You're, now that you're, would just be bragging, wouldn't it? <laughs> no, I it? no, I think it'd be great. Um, you, you know, the thing, the, the challenge with super cardioids is if you move around at all, just know that it's going to be. I mean, it it is very directional, and so you will um, you go in. You know, the pumping may be a problem. You might go end up going in and out of its uh, its field. I go ahead, Courtney. And also, if it uses an interference tube to generate its directionality, you can get into weird harmonics of the room, uh, uh, make strange make strange noises on some of those microphones. It, uh, it depends on the room that you're using it in. That's why we try and stay away from using uh, 816s or really long shotguns with long interference tubes indoors because the standing waves inside the room interfere with the directionality and it can cause peaks in, uh, in the frequency response. The other thing is you don't want to use an expensive microphone like the MKH 8050 on an office table where people have known to spill coffee into them. I go ahead, Alex. It's a great sounding microphone. I've seen it more commonly used in overhead boom scenarios. The one thing, and we've touched on it already, with the the polar pattern of that microphone, uh, just be aware too that with super cardioid microphones, you got to think about the acoustics of the room and the environment where the noise is in the space. So that microphone will have a bit of a rear lobe, 180 degrees off access. So if you have some noise directly 180 degrees off access, then you're probably going to want a cardioid microphone, which will have better rejection there. So just think about the space that you're in. Next question. 
Next one in for Douglas Carmichael. Alex, how would you compare the design of the 12 South Curve Flex stand to the Brocoon stand you use? Um, I, I, it, it actually looks pretty good. I, I, you know, I don't have a strong opinion about it. Um, you know, I, I bought the one that I bought because it showed up on YouTube when I hit when I hit search. So I can't say that it's, I've gone through many, many of them to to do this. Um, I will say that uh, you know. So if I if we take a look at this, this is what he's talking about here. Um, this is um, you know, it, it's a folding uh, laptop stand. And um, it, it doesn't look like it might go as flat as the one that I have now, which is actually pretty important. I'm putting it into a case. Um, I'm actually going to be taking it to LA on, on Monday. Um, and, uh, the, um, uh, and so it, it does look interesting. I, you know, I might be tempted to try it out to see how it looks. But it, uh, it, when I look at it, it doesn't feel like it would be as stable as the one that I have now. But I don't know that for sure. Um, so, so it might be something good to test. So we'll we'll uh, we'll see if we can't. Uh, I, I might look into it. I don't. I didn't see the price, so I'm not sure exactly how much it costs. But we'll we'll uh, we'll take a look. We'll take a closer look at it. Uh, next question. Next one in from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. If you connect your iPhone to Zoom using continuity camera, what controls the size, brightness, contrast, etc. of the resulting image? I think it's the phone. Yeah. So I think it's, I think the phone is controlling that. I don't think. You have a ton of control over that, so um, I don't. I think that it just kind of uses the phone, and the phone's kind of in an auto mode um, as you do that. I don't think that you have any kind of explicit control over the iPhone when you when you switch to this. Um, that's my understanding of it. I haven't really used it that much um, because I I have cameras that still look better than the iPhone, <laughs> so so I so I haven't needed to needed to to do that. But uh, but it, and I and I when I see people use the continuity camera, I'm like it's. Fine, like it's. I mean, it's definitely better than most webcams, um, but it's but it's not something that I would use regularly. Um, next question, David Brady, New York, New York is a question. QR code creation. I know the debate is open about how to generate a QR code, but why not simply use Apple shortcuts? Ask for URL with under a URL. Generate a QR code from provided input. Save QR code, show saved file, easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Sounds like a lot of work, and there's a lot of people out there that don't have Apple computers. But as I've shown before, the uh, built if you have the Chrome browser, which is cross-platform, and I think it's built into almost all of them, you can do this up on the URL code. There's a little share button right here, and you just click on that, and you go down to... Create QR code, and there you are. It's a QR card. And I discovered something else. You can uh, now type whatever you want, you know. Like, if you see this, you nosy. And then you can just uh, save that out or download it. And whatever you type in this little box there, it creates instantly that QR code for you. And it's built into all versions of, oops, all versions of Chrome. Yeah, go ahead, Samuel. Yeah, I actually thought this was quite cool, uh, what uh, David showed. I wasn't aware of this before now, uh, but you can just add a shortcut and put in a URL, and uh, then it generates a QR code and shortcut. So it's actually a very cool solution. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I, I agree with Courtney with uh, Chrome, although I don't know if I want a dinosaur in the middle of the uh, the QR code. If you use QR Factory and you do have a piece, or Mac, excuse me, um, you can play around with all the uh, graphics and uh, readability and other things on it. So you have a lot more control than just creating a QR code. Yeah, go ahead, Jeffrey. 
Yeah, and when if you're trying to do any type of customization on your QR codes, uh, that's where this will this will this will work for uh, just sending something out. Like if you want to send out what uh, what Courtney just typed up, uh, but yeah, sometimes what I have to do is I have to do some customization to it. I want to take out all that white space in the background, and that's going to be a lot more difficult when uh, when you have something as uh, generic as that. Yeah, the, if you if you look at this, this is QR Factory. There's a lot more to it than just putting stuff in. You know, so this will allow you to kind of you can find the 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 actual date, the calendar. I don't know why you. I guess you get a crypto. You get an email location, so you can decide what the location is, and you'll see it. It actually, um, I think if if I move this, uh, I'm not, yeah, well, I can put the the location in here specifically, and it'll it'll actually um, do it for me here. So it'll do it automatically for me. It doesn't mean you can't do it with your QR code. I mean, with with uh, shortcuts, it just means that. You know, so for instance, it's, it's building around this uh, this logo here, and those are the kind of things that I I add logos to the center of uh, what I do pretty often. Um, this is one here. So if you have like the ask um, Alex dot com, we'll just say, and so here I have you know this here. Now there's a couple things that I can do that there's a, there's other things that. Um, that you know, how big is the safe zone here? It turns out that that safe zone is important for Android. Um, if Android <laughs> doesn't have a safe zone, um, uh, a safe zone at all, it will not read it well. I'm also can change the reliability. So this is how it's how it's structured. This it'll look simpler on low, for instance, but it will. It may not be. It, it doesn't have as much redundancy in it, so it's harder. And then also things like appearance, pixel roundness, like in you know, make this look a lot more round if I want to make it. I wish there was more in Tata QR Factory, but that's, and change output size. Um, you know, I can put text across the bottom, which I never do. Um, I can put a center icon in so it'll work around that and decide how much the border, you know, builds around that center icon. So there's, you know, there's a lot more to it if you're doing this a lot. You know, so that's the big thing is, is are you, if you're firing one off, um, this gets back into being functional and, you know, giving it a little, uh, I guess the technical term for it would be pizzazz. Pizzazz would be the thing. I guess Jeff Keithley would say pizzazz. Um, anyway, so, um, but I think that I, I prefer, I wish that QR Factory actually gave us more options. There's a lot of creativity. And also I change the colors a lot. Like you can see the if they, the QR code that's up here right now, I, you know, I, I started messing with the colors because in HDR, the white looked it was too bright, <laughs> so so I, so we um, we flipped it and gave it gray, and and we're kind of playing with what that looks like. But but this would be what what you're seeing over here would be hard to do with just the shortcuts. So so it just depends on how far you want to push it. I've been making lots of QR codes for years, and so I get you know even this is a pretty simple one. We love playing with the design and, and having it look a certain way, as opposed to just having it be another QR code that you fired out. And I have to admit that, as someone who does QR codes, I'm probably I'm probably very unusual because I build them. When I see someone just punch out a regular QR code, like just something that they could have done with a script, um, you know, and they put that actually in public, you know, as a brand, I'm like, huh. Really, <laughs> like, like this? This must be the first time you did that. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you change the QR code recently and swap the colors? I did. I did it from this white week. to black, black to white. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, I did it this week. We did it this week because, again, what? What? This is why we're doing the HDR stuff on Saturdays. I was looking. At, I was reviewing one of the Saturday files, and um, I noticed that the uh, that the QR code was. Um, bright 
like very bright. You know, so I, so um, this is like this is the first time we're attempting to. Well, what if I make it darker and just a little darker? And what does that look like? Now I left the text and the logo to be some parts be white, so that to see how that stands out. You know, in in the HDR feed. So those are those are the things that we're that I'm playing with. Yeah. So I'm that. But this is again why we why we're doing. Uh, these Saturdays is to kind of see what what happens in different areas. Um, next question. Next one in is a QR code drop question from Daniel Ferguson in Thousand Oaks, California. Please explain the role color profiles play in video and web graphics, and what might happen if no profile or the wrong profile is attached. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, when you're basically matching up all kinds of devices, whether it's the camera that shot the the uh, uh, the, the video or whatever, uh, the monitor, even the software, you need to have a standard profile so they all have a standard reference point. Otherwise, it's pure anarchy, uh, which you do not want. Uh, so uh, Alex could probably explain more detail how the gamut is affected, depending. But I'm a Rec 709 guy. All right, go ahead, Courtney. Well, in the early days, boys and girls of the Internet, there were only 216 colors available in HTML, believe it or not. So there was a palette of what they called web-safe colors. So if you wanted something to be a specific color on your web page, you had to use the web-safe color that was the nearest to the color that you wanted to use. And they had a chart... uh, Here it is of a lot of the Pantone or the RGB values of all the web safe colors that there were back when the Internet just started. So a lot of uh, a lot of uh, web composition software tried to keep you to uh, like the Adobe software tried to keep you to those web safe colors or it would convert your RGB, you know, your full 8 bit RGB to web safe colors so that it would be consistent across all browsers. But these days with HTML5, I think you have a much broader gamut to choose from. Yeah, one of the challenges is that you have monitors, you know, monitors and and to some degree printers, but really monitors and monitors are all different. You know, so the thing is, is that your your color profile for your monitor, what is white? What is the color of the white in in the monitor? Is it cooler? Is it warmer? What is the gamma? Is it is it you know? And so those things are the monitors are all set that way. And so when you can match the profile, if you have a profile for the image, um, and you and you match that profile to the to the monitor, the goal is is that you then know that red is that red is the red that you expect when you print it or when you send it to another monitor. So if you send it from one. Um, calibrated monitor to another calibrated monitor with those calibrated profiles, then it, then they then the, that color should look consistent across that. Now, of course, we have the problem that nobody else has it, so the, the consumer doesn't have any calibration across their monitors. There, there's a joke that NTSC stands for never the same color. So so the um, uh, so the so the, that's a problem you end up with. But at least you're starting at a starting point where everything's the same. That's that's what the color profiles are designed to handle. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I used to run into trouble. Uh, I used to design an uh, Illustrator and bring it into After Effects, and I couldn't figure out why everything looked uh, wiped out color-wise. It didn't have the saturation, and it's because the color profiles were different. Even the color profile or color space. I mean, you were because the problem with the with profile Adobe. on the Illustrator file right. has to match the yeah, yeah. other on uh, After Effects. So yep. if you wanted 709, you had to use, what, S709 or whatever, yeah. Adobe? Uh, S- SRGB, I think, is what we usually, yeah, did worked on there. Yeah, that's it. Yep. Uh, next question. 
Craig Kadoki from Toronto, Canada. Shopping for monitors and seeing sRGB or Adobe RGB or maybe even Rec 709. Could you maybe give a bit of clarity as to what these different values actually mean to the end user and what do we really need to look for? You know, I think that that typically it's what what I see there is that this is this can display this percentage of this color space and and the one that's the most common is um, the P3 you know that, that's what we're seeing right now is like this can do 98% of the P3 gamut and this is this is saying I have a there's a box of colors that 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 all of P3 or 709 or whatever that box of colors, can the monitor actually display all those colors? That's the question. And so, um, and, and does it have the, 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 the gamut to do that? You know, the, 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 the color width, you know, to do, to, to cut or the space to actually show all those colors and it'll tell you what percentage of them that it can show because very rarely only the highest end monitors can get closer to 100% and very rarely do they do 100% um, but they can say we can show you this percentage of that of that gamut um, to give you a sense of, of what that monitor will do. Next question. And it's another QR code question coming in from Chester Sweeney in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, I've got a Mix Pre 3 and a Flow 8 that I use on my Mac Mini M2. I'm looking for something similar for my M1 Mini. I mainly use the ports for my Akai MK Mini and my SM58. No effects except the logic effects. So... The confusing part of this question, uh, yeah, I read it a little earlier, is that if I wanted something similar for my, my Mac, Mac Mini M2, I would get a Mix Pre 3 and a Flow 8. <laughs> so I just get something that was the same thing. So I guess the question for, for you, Chester, is what do you want that's different? Do you want to spend less money? Do you want, do you want something that's similar? I mean, I think that uh, for what you're saying that you're using, you could probably get um, a Zoom F6 or F3 or F, you know, there's these are, you know, you know, less expensive. It just depends on how much control. If you're just mostly using them as ports for a, um, for a, the, the, the Akai and the, and the SM58, you probably don't need as much as your, as what you have there. Um, that's, that's, those are my two cents. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, pretty much what you're saying, Alex. I mean, I, it sounds like any smaller interface would be good. Um, you know, like we, and we've talked about these on the show before, but like the SSL2 interface or uh, the Audient line of interfaces, uh, those are all really, really good. Some of the Motu stuff, like the Motu M2 and M4 are very affordable. If you just need a few inputs that have a you know good quality analog to digital conversion, those will all do the job for that. Next question. Next one in from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. Uh, the question is, with Zoom offering a variety of ways to get guaranteed 1080p, is it still better to pay the $250 a month for a business account? And does the business account now guarantee 1080p without having to justify the need for it? Yeah, so I think that now if you pay the $99 a month um, uh, fee for Zoom, so this is the Zoom Sessions uh, license, you get 1080p. So 1080p comes with it, so it's $99, and you get um, uh, Adam Tao's cool production studio. We're going to be testing it uh, for office hours. So as we turn our main system down so that we can move it um, next week um, somewhere, <laughs> we're still working on that. Um, but the uh, but as we turn that down, um, we will be... Um, uh, one of the tests, we actually, um, John Wallace actually has a, a near mirror of our system. So we're going to be hopefully using his system a little bit as well. Um, and, and helping ring that out with the, with the system there. But otherwise we are, um, looking at, um, 
using, you know, experimenting with the production studio and, and seeing what that looks like. But you should get 1080p if you pay the $99 a month uh, for sessions. That should, that should solve your problem. So you still have to pay for it, but it's less than it used to be. And I think Zoom is still the only one that will give you 1080p with more than two people. You know, so I think that that's the, that's the trick, I think, is I don't think that, you know, so teams will say 1080p, but it's only you and one other person. As soon as you add a third person, it goes to 720. Um, and I don't, <coughs> excuse me, I don't think WebEx does 1080p. Although I will say that WebEx has gotten, I, I, I see WebEx, I'm, uh, I see WebEx about once every month or two, and I'm, and they've taken a lot of ground. <laughs> in, 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 I, we used to make fun of them, and there's no reason to make fun of them anymore. I don't know if they're as good as Zoom. I don't know if they have those tools, but there's but they but they've they've become respectable um, in in a very short period of time. Uh, but but I don't think that they're doing 1080p. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I'm way behind on the, what's going on with Zoom because I recall with business you had to have 10 different seats that you had to pay for. That used to minimum. be well, yeah, business. The business that was that's what he's talking about. The business account was 10 seats, and um, so finally it's normalized into something a little less expensive and a little more focused. It's not just that you get that; you get basically all the tools that you would get. With events and everything else, without having to deal with events, because you know. Anyway, <laughs> so anyway, so the uh, uh, you know it used to be you had to get like some event license to get the a bunch of the extra tools, and um, no one wanted the event license; they just wanted the extra tools, and so now you can just have the extra tools. So, um, uh, next question. Michael Dickman from Munich asking, um, oh, by the way, this is a QR code question. Could I use a Dante USB-C adapter to integrate an iPhone 15? And would iPhone recognize the Dante device as mic and speaker? Would this uh, USB-C connection load iPhone, the battery, uh, I guess what he means is charge, the iPhone battery too? Um, Michael, it's a great question. I have no idea what the answer is, but I, you, you just cost me money because I have to, I have to know, I have to know whether that's going to be seen as a mic and a, it should. It, so, so the way that that USB connection works is it should just show up as a USB device to whatever it's plugged into. That's how it's designed. So that's how it works on the, on the, you know, when you use it with a, um, uh, with a Mac mini or, or, a, or even a PC, it just shows up as a USB device and you should be able to just connect to it. And that is, so genius to to think about putting it into a phone, and I, I hadn't thought of that. Um, and I thank you for the question. Yeah, go ahead, Alex. Yeah, and also one thing to be aware of. And this has caught me a couple times, but normally, and if it does recognize it, when you plug any device into the Lightning port, even if it's a Lightning to uh, headphone adapter or on the newer devices a USB C jack, you will always get a modal pop up that'll say, "Are you connecting headphones?" And you do have to accept that. I find that. Um, really, really strange that Apple seems to think that any device being plugged in, whether it's an audio interface or actual headphones, it still says, are you plugging in headphones? So you do have to accept that in order for it to recognize it as a microphone. Next question. And it's coming in from Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, uh, British Columbia, Canada. I know the ATM software controls allows you to shade the Blackmagic cameras, but why can't I adjust the color on the HDMI inputs for third-party cameras. It'd be useful to make minor tweaks without having to change the actual camera settings. Go ahead, Courtney. 
Well, that's exactly what's going on with the HDMI control of the Blackmagic cameras. They're changing the uh, levels in the analog stage of the camera itself before it gets encoded into HDMI. Uh, what we used to have is called something called a proc amp that uh, would take uh, inputs into a switcher and run them through an analog uh, processing amp. That's what proc amp stands for. So you could adjust the uh, uh, gain, the offset, the black levels, uh, the gamma of the video signal, as well as the YC, uh, YCRCB color space uh, for the uh, HSL uh, hue saturation level. So it, it's a, it was an analog device. So they'd have to convert it from digital to analog and back from analog to digital, and it's too expensive and there's not enough hardware in there to do it on all the uh, HDMI inputs is probably why. You could probably do it digitally, but uh, that's probably more processing than would fit on the chip. Hey, go ahead, uh, Samuel. Yeah, uh, what Courtney said, uh, the, uh, what happens when you control the camera is you send data uh, from the ATEM to the camera via either HDMI or SDI. And the other cameras are not able to receive this data and shade the shade inside the camera. Uh, and of course, uh, if you were going to do it inside the ATEM, then you would have to have more processing and it would be make a much more expensive device. I don't know if it would make it much more expensive, but it would definitely make it more expensive. There's already parts of the Teranex system inside of the ATEM right now. That's how it's scaling from your video. And, and, and I will argue that the scaler that is in all the ATEM minis is um, that that it's re you know it's reframing it so if you give it a different frame rate it figures it out if you give it a different resolution it figures it out within <laughs> within reason um, that requires more processing than color manipulation because that is a um, that's going to require convolution kernels to basically look at the pixels around it and so on and so forth whereas the color transformation is a much lower hit um, from a you know you'd have to put a chip in there but the chip that's required. Um, is far less um, uh, robust than than what is necessary for the scaling and the re, and the re uh, and refactoring the frame rate. So so I think they could put it in. It's not in there. That is the problem. That's why it doesn't work. But I but I do think that that a um, there's a somewhere in the future that you could see it. Like I do think that there's probably a we should do a second hour. We 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 have to move to all internal discussions for a little bit of time because of the um, move. We might have to do a, a like a ATEM um, wish list, like all the things we wish we could have with the ATEM. That'd be a good second hour of us talking about it. But one of them is exactly what Alex asked for, which is um, being able to do color transformations, um, being able to, to, it would be life-changing, you know, and, and to be able to apply LUTs to it. So not just color transformation, but being able to drop a LUT in um, to every input going in. And if it costs an extra $200, which it would not cost more than an extra $200 to do, I'd pay it. <laughs> you don't like to do that. Like if you, if you did that, if you take out the um, eighth inch jacks and put in uh, TA3s, if you, you know, gave it an output, you know, little things like that. And, you know, I, I'm just, I have been known to make fun of Ravenna. I know that I have, I have, uh, there have been times when I, I don't like it. It's, it's really good for very large scale stuff, but it's not been great for small ones. I really wish, but I, given the options, I kind of wish Blackmagic would um, uh, adopt Ravenna because it's basically Dante for free. Uh, if they're not going to use Dante, give us something that is a little bit more more network audio than Maddie, you know. And so I don't know. Well, we think of, think about these things. 
we'll, we'll create a second hour and we'll all come together and then we'll package it up and we'll send it on a USB to, to Australia. <laughs> like, hey, this is what we want. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Isn't the Ravenna part of the AES 67 specification? That, uh, I'm, not, um, I'm not an expert in Ravenna. I'm, I'm going to stay out of that okay. one. Yeah, no, Leave ne- it for Mickey. Yeah, next question. <laughs> okay, next one from a QR code question from Marilee Zua Miera from Weebelo, Missouri. What's happening to my questions? I ask a lot and they got on show before, but now they just don't get asked at all, even though they sound like stuff that interests the show. Is it something wrong with the questions or wrong with me? Should I bother? The reason we put this question in uh, is because I just want to make sure you know that we're not skipping your questions. So if you're putting a bunch of questions in that we're not getting to, I apologize. I don't know why they're not getting through. So, um, uh, so if uh, so, go ahead and keep on asking those questions. Uh, and if you are watching right now, you can ask the questions via the QR code, and we'll put that little QR code up here. We try to get to all of them. There, if you ask ones uh, that we view are really out of out of bounds. Um, there are the reason that we kind of don't put them directly into our system is specifically because we get a couple questions that are out of bounds. Or if you're asking about, we had somebody. I don't. I don't think it was you, but someone was asking a lot about people's hair, and we didn't put those through. Um, you know, just just how they had their their hairstyling and everything else, and we chose not to bring those forward. So if you ask stuff like that, <laughs> we may not put those through. And you know, we make some decisions about about what those what those look like. But I I know that we've brought questions in that you've you've had before, and we will continue to uh, work on on bringing them together. But if they're good technical questions, there's no reason for us not to bring them in. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. I was going to ask Alex, are they, because uh, I don't know on the back end, are the QR questions added into the voting queue so that people yeah. vote on them? Yeah, they are. They yeah, are. So, so. They, yeah, so, the, so what happens is, is that the QR code comes in, it comes into its own sandbox. And the reason we do that is because um, I want to be able to see them beforehand so that they're not just kind of, you know, a lot of things could kind of get muddy in the in the main feed. Then usually right before the show, and then I try to do it during the show, but sometimes we <laughs> we're still getting good we're still getting good at using the QR code. That's why we're starting it up. But usually right before the show, about fifteen minutes before the show, I I kind of look at them all and file them all in. Um, and so that's that's usually when they go in. Um, but during the show, I'll check a couple times um, to make sure that there's if especially if there's stuff. We have one that I think floated in here. I think it's the next one that. Um, that I think probably came in on that second hour. We just missed it. So we're still figuring this whole this whole process out around the QR codes. And usually this would be a question on Sunday, but we don't use the QR codes on Sunday because we don't record it. And we don't know if you're watching or not. So so anyway, so the uh, so I wanted to address that one on. A, I figured a Saturday was a good day to address it. But the um, uh, yeah, so that's that's what we're doing there. Um, next question. We have a, another QR code question coming in, and it looks like a second hour from yesterday's show, but it's George Kennedy from Washington asking, can the jellyfish be backed up to AWS S3, or is it just backblaze? I'll go ahead, Jeffrey. Uh, yeah, actually, <clears throat> excuse me, jellyfish can uh, be backed up to several different types of uh, of, of ser- cloud servers. AWS is, being one, is one of them. They also say that uh, Wasabi is another one that you can go to. Uh, it would it would behoove them not to do to uh, make it uh, specific. Otherwise, it becomes uh, less functional for uh, what you need because you never know why if you need to send it to S3, uh, maybe for a client, maybe for another service and uh, be able to do the editing that you need. Next question. And it's another QR question from Chester Sweeney in Las Vegas. In a room when dealing with sound reflection and absorption, will velvet curtains reflect 
or absorb sound. Go ahead, Alex. I mean, they would definitely will help, and they will absorb. Uh, so, I mean, if you get the good kind, like the good, heavy, thick uh, velour drapes that theaters tend to have, that definitely will help. I would seriously look at, if you're looking at doing this properly, look into actual acoustic uh, treatment from reputable companies, like uh, Prime Acoustic would be one example. They actually have these different room kits that you can get, and they, they will actually tell you um, what size room they will work. Those types of panels which are which are made out of uh, fiber wool backing uh, you know they're usually anywhere from an inch to two or three inches thick those do a much much better job of absorbing uh, frequencies and they can actually give you even I think a free assessment if you just email them so I would look into that go ahead Courtney uh, yeah right what was just said that if it's uh, a good a good rule of thumb is if uh, light reflects from it it'll reflect sound as well if uh, if the light doesn't reflect from it like uh, black velvet it will uh, absorb sound or not reflect sound so uh, it'll both absorb and not reflect uh, so use that as a rule of thumb and of course the thicker the material the more it will absorb just the surface of the material determines whether or not it will reflect, not how thick it is. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Mitchell. Yeah, and I'll add to the good information you just got from Courtney and Alexander. Um, when you refer to reflection, that is a thing. Um, but if you're doing reflection of audio inside a room, you really want it diffused. And that's where you see those uh, building block things that look strange. Behind, I think uh, Nigel has one behind him. If you can diffuse the sound, it uh, doesn't reflect quite as much and it sounds more natural. But uh, you're doing the right thing. Uh, you know, adding room treatment before trying to fix it after the fact is the best approach. Do it first before you do anything else. Yeah, so the, the thing about, we use curtains a lot, and especially in an in temporary environment. So if you're building something out, you might not use it, but if you are in a temporary environment, you're going to a theater, or you're doing something, you're going into a room, a lot of times we will ask for curtains or bring curtains with us and have them installed. And it is specifically to knock down on reflection, on reverb, and so on and so forth. There's a couple, there's one term that you want to keep in mind, and that's fullness. What is, they'll ask you, like, how much fullness? Zero fullness is... I have two poles and the, the, it goes straight across. That's not very, that's not very absorptive. It will do something, but it won't do a lot. Um, if you say I want 100% fullness, that means I took this much, twice as much, 100% fullness is I took twice as much a curtain and I, you know, bunched it up between these two. So that's that's 100% fullness. And we usually look for anywhere from 50 to 100% fullness so that these, all those curves that you see, not only does the does that velvet, um, that thick velvet absorb some of the sound, but the curves act as, a, as another absorption to it. Um, and so that will, it doesn't really, again, this is not sound proofing. This is not going to affect sound coming through there, but what it will do is diffuse, not only it'll diffuse higher frequencies and as you have those curves it will diffuse the lower frequencies as well so so the um so you want to think about those um that as you start to look at those curtains as you put them around um the the one place that almost everybody goes at least on the west coast is rose brand so rose brand is the is the company that makes um curtains for everybody and um and you can get them and we or we used to order them we had in our studio in Petaluma, we had tracks that Rosebrand also sold us with curves and everything else. And you could build uh, one or even two layers of these, moving them around so that we could affect both light um, reflection from the psych, as well as, um, you know, cut down a lot on the sound and, on the, and mostly on the reflection. Go ahead, Jeffrey. 
So two things uh, to keep in mind if you are doing the curtains. First of all, don't flatten them out. If you uh, right, let them the do a little, little fullness right there, yeah, that, that'll help it out. The other thing is uh, set it about an inch away from the surface that you're trying to... Uh, like a wall or something like that. That way some sound can get behind it and, and uh, be captured from there. Uh, that's what they do a lot in theaters. You'll see just standing curtains that have that, uh, that, that ripple to it, that sign into it. And then, of course, you have scrims up on top that are trying to absorb any sound that gets up, up on top as well. Next question. Next one in from Douglas Carmichael. One justification for Roblox to mandate return to office was that in-person meetings are less fatiguing. Would this be a function of audio-video quality or deeper issues? Good, Courtney. I think it's more of a function of uh, your attention span is spread across a broader area. If you're on a, a remote uh, vi- audio video thing, you're you're look you're staring in the monitor with a consistent stare at a consistent distance for a long period of time without changing your gaze. You might be looking at different things on the screen, but you're basically concentrating on one spot. If you're in a room with a bunch of people, you're mo- you're, you're looking over at the speaker over here. You're looking at somebody else who's making a presentation over here. You're looking down at your notes. So you're changing your gaze uh, and a consistent gaze creates fatigue and people will tell you you know if you've worked as a programmer or something you're staring at a screen for six hours get up every couple hours and go outside and focus on the distance because it rests your eyes it relaxes the muscles in your eyes because uh, you do get a lot of fatigue based on staring at one spot and focusing on one at one distance for a long period of time I think that's what contributes a lot to uh, uh, you know why people get sleepy in the middle of of a virtual conference as opposed to in a live conference. As someone who spends probably eight hours a day in virtual conferences, uh, I will argue that it is almost all audio and video quality. I can sit much more comfortably in my in my space and talk to people about stuff. And I have uh, it is it's just so hard to listen and look at people who have bad audio and bad video. It, it, and you can see it like when I meet with other people that are in office hours, when I meet with other people who are professionals at doing what they're doing, which is what we do here, um, I find myself talking to them for an hour or two hours without any kind of um, you know fatigue at all. Whereas when I go into meetings with yahoos, um, you know, and they they're they're, um, uh, you know, they're just, everyone's got their webcam on or they've got their webcam kind of half off or they go into, the, you know, all the other things that are there. It's brutal. Like, it is just a brutal experience. And and it is, it's really hard to, you know, like you can't hear them. You know, there's got, they've got all that, that virtual background, you know, or virtual blur on it. And it's all just... Uh, I've kind of gotten into the habit of when they do that, I've kind of started turning my... I have to admit that... If I go in and almost everybody's got bad bad video, I tend to just turn it off so I can go work on something else while I'm listening and then talk when I want to talk. Uh, you know, I've I've started to not not really try to participate. If no one else is going to try, then, then I'm just, I just give up. So, um, you know, unless I have to make a point. The the one advantage that I will say is that if you want to make a point um, or if you want to move something forward, you leave the cameras on because you look better than everybody else and sound better than everybody else. And you'd be surprised at how many things you can move down the path if you look and sound better than other people. You know, like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a tried and true method that we've been using for thousands of years. And so, um, so the, uh, so I, you know, I, I do think that there's a huge connection to that, um, that's there that no one has respected ever really, you know, and, and I will admit that 
for a long period of time, I didn't do it. So when, when I talk about people not getting into this, the way I look now, which is about middle of the road for, I would say that I'm middle of the road here. I mean, I think I, was, I, think I like, um, you know, I think a lot of people here play pretty hard. Uh, I didn't, um, uh, I wouldn't go on. To, I was, we were, you know, this is what we did was hang Google Hangouts and I wouldn't go on Google Hangouts for meetings. I would just leave the phone off. I'd call in. I'd do all kinds of other stuff. I was very passive, ag passive, passive aggressive about it because I was just like, oh, I don't want to be another video meeting. And um, what made the difference, you know, so, so anyway, I, un I definitely undermined my business by doing that. You know, like I definitely undermined how much work I got by not, you know, really leaning into that process. Um, and so, so I think that that is, um, I would highly recommend thinking about that, especially if you're a remote worker is to think about, you know, really upping your game to make sure that, that you look good when you're talking to people. Um, and the, uh, so I, I think that that, that does make a big difference. Companies have not invested in their employees having good setups at home because they want them to come back to the office. Um, and, and so that's the, I mean, that's the issue. I think that the, the fundamental problem that's going to happen for companies is that the uh, their workers don't want to come back, and they may come back if they're forced. But I, I mean, from all, many people that I've talked to, they're all the all of them are ramping up their LinkedIn. They they go to mixers all the time. They're much more active now. They used to be settled and be like, oh, I work at this company. I work at this company, and they it kind of was like their personality, and they they really felt like they're part of the company. When the companies force them to come back in, it's no, it's no longer. It doesn't mean that they quit, but they're no longer connected to the company. <laughs> like they they're there they're there until they find another job, you know. And that's a very different way of working. And when you look at productivity and overall effectiveness and everything else, these companies are building their house on sand, you know. And that sand eventually is going to go out from under them. Um, go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I just wanted to echo what you were saying, Alex, and support support your experiences too, because that's been my experience too. And I, I, as someone who has to sit in on a lot of product training sessions, because I I sell a lot of pro audio gear, and. I find myself drifting off, you know, when I sit in on a Zoom session from, and I'm not going to name any names, but I, I'm talking to someone who works at a big company that, that manufactures high-end microphones yeah. and they're not <laughs> they even using their own microphone. Microphones, yeah, they're not right. using a micro. I'm like, what is happening here? And, yeah. you know, I email head office and, and like, I'll just log off. And I, I, I've told people at head office, I'm, I'm not sitting in on a training session like that. You want me to come in on that? Like, you're going to have to tell them to like organize a better training session and use their own microphones. It's embarrassing. It's insane. Yeah. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Microphones and cameras. Uh, I was in. I actually was in a meeting uh, a couple weeks ago where it was about cameras, and uh, and everybody was had cameras that was completely misplaced. That you know, their heads were like down here, like Kilroy or, or anything like that. Uh, so yeah, that's. I I definitely agree on that. But there's another thing that, that a lot of people are probably forgetting, and that is how bad some of the. Uh, at in office meetings actually were. I remember I had a I worked at a place that it was really nice uh, building looked like a old woodsy type thing like if you walked into like a sporting goods uh, certain sporting goods stores, but it was an open office concept and uh, there were no ceilings on a lot of the conference rooms. So if you got into the conference room, you heard a lot of the reflections from the workers around. And then not only that, but then you also had the delays. Like when we have a 
virtual conference uh, or, or meeting, it's usually, unless there's more than one per, or two people, you're usually going into the meeting and then the third person shows up. But in the old meetings, it was like you had, if you, you were waiting for the third person and if that third person didn't show, the second person would go out into the office to try and find the third person. So that would make it a little bit longer on the wait. And then, like I said, some of these office rooms were just so reflective that sometimes it was super hard to hear anything. So in some cases, I do like the idea of a virtual conference. But, uh, and, and then, of course, you have the hybrid stuff, which gets even worse. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Mitchell. I think you said one time, Alex, that uh, the virtual uh, presentation is much like putting on a, a bespoke suit uh, in a sales meeting when you're in a conference room, and that doesn't happen anymore. But when you have great audio, great sound, great internet, and great background, um, you've really done a lot to improve your presentation. You kind of own that meeting. There is another level, too, and that level is how you present yourself, how attentive you are during the meeting. You have to train yourself to look straight in the eye of the uh, the other people that are in the room and look interested in what's going on. That adds an extra veneer to the whole thing to make it perfect. Yeah, and, and, and it's not that I'm like that in every single meeting either. There are definitely more casual meetings where I know people better, and I'm actually much more conversational if I turn... I will, I will say, I'm more conversational when I turn the camera off because I'm usually walking around my office. When I walk, I think differently. And so I, so me walking around the office or, or some people will tell you that I'll get, I'll get into meetings. When I'm on the phone, I prefer to clean my pool while I'm on the phone because it just gives me something, gives my hands something to do while I'm talking. Um, and, um, and so, so I think better when I do that, um, uh, when I'm moving around a little bit. So when I'm brainstorming with someone, a lot of times I try to have my phone, my video off and but when I'm meeting I tend to have my video on so it's not that I always have a video on on the thing I actually don't like when people uh FaceTime me like I I know that people do that and they they like I don't like FaceTiming because then I have to hold the phone and I have to think about what's behind me and I have to think about what's going on and what angle it is and where the lighting is and so I find that to be I find FaceTime or coming in from my mobile phone to be very stressful and and then this gets back to um, I do find that that adds a lot of cognitive load to me is to, for someone to FaceTime me to my phone. Like I don't, I hate that. Like just hate it with a passion. Uh, go ahead, Alex. Yeah. And Alex, when you're walking around with the camera off, is there a hands-free set that you like to use? For 100%. Yeah. I use, um, I usually have two of them laying around here, but I may have them sitting in the other, in another room right now. Um, I use the open com, uh, the shocks open comms. I have two of them so that they never run out of battery. Um, my annoyance is that they, um, they don't, if someone calls me, even though I was just listening to music, I'm holding the phone. Apple will not um, pair automatically. I have to go and I think it's some kind of security thing. So they, I have to go in. If it's an Apple device, it'll just lock right on and it'll, I'll get it. But the problem is that the mics aren't nearly as good. And the reason the open comm is better is because it has a boom. You know, the old fashioned booms, that we got rid of, and we thought that technology would make it better. There you go, Jeffrey's showing the boom right there. That is the open com. That's the one that I use. Um, of course, I pulled the boom down a little lower because it's his is pretty far away from his mouth. Um, no pressure. There, there you go. So Jeff, Jeffrey's taking advantage of this thing that we like to call physics. You know, so so the thing is, is he's just a lot closer to the the mic. The mic has two things. One is it's got an outer mic that's picking up and doing noise cancellation. It also um, is much, much closer to your mouth. And so I, I end up with a lot less complaints about audio. They, people can't hear me 
you know, doing other things or whatever when I have that headset on. So I, and I use it almost exclusively. And I also have to admit that I've gotten used to, uh, um, I've gotten kind of used, used, so used to the open comms. I do like to be able to hear things around me while I'm talking to people. So it's, it's a good, uh, uh, yeah. So thanks to Tom Ferguson. And I love to say that because then JJ gets mad. JJ's like, I showed you this a long time ago. One of the first days JJ was in her office, he, um, he, he had, he, JJ uses the open comms and he uses them a lot. And he told me that I should use them. And I was like, ah, I don't think so. I've been using open comms on office hours since the start. I've been talking about that since. But I'm just saying though, it was, it was JJ really trying to push me down that path. And I was like, no, no, no. And then I was like, hey, look at what Tom Ferguson showed me. And JJ's like, you know what? Anyway, so, um, thanks JJ and, and, and Jeffrey and Tom. All right. Next question. Next one in is a QR code question from Maxfield Hunt in or on Alcatraz, San Francisco Bay, California. The fine print on the QR question submission landing page is extremely well written. It goes beyond standard legalese. To whom do we have to thank for this work? Uh, I I don't remember where the, where that to be honest with you I don't know where that came came from we we put it together a long time ago that's you know it's, it's a commercial product that we use for other clients and uh, and so we're applying it to here so I don't remember where that came from I I I, I wish I had a better answer but I don't know uh, next question and it's Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam BC British Columbia Canada with a QR code question what would be the ideal A10 mini refresh for you have as many buttons balanced audio inputs more compositing options one extra output on the HDMI version I think this really belongs in a second hour but I think that you're 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 hitting most of the high points there uh, go ahead Courtney yeah, one thing I'd like to see is a, um, a couple of more aux buses, uh, aux video outputs that you could that have a switcher on them, like you do have on the pros, the six input. Uh, I mean, the four input that you have the uh, selectors yeah. that you output over an additional output, so that you could control feeds to a projector or feeds to another type of audience uh, separately from the main switcher. And I think that that is. Um, uh uh, that is a function of space, I think, because the the SDI version of the Extreme has four outputs and not two, um, and it is um, and it's one of the big reasons I like that switcher significantly better than the HDMI one. It's having those four, and of course, we ran out of auxes immediately. Like like we we uh, use them. There's no you can't have enough. That's why the, the constellation is so kind of magical. Is that you've got 40 inputs, but you got 24 outputs as well. Yeah, go ahead, Alex. The one thing that really bugs me too, and I would love to see it, is a new, for the UVC output, a much higher quality, fully uncompressed, like something that's as good as maybe an Aja capture card for mm-hmm. USB output would be amazing. Just not crushing the blacks would make me happy. You know, like, like that would, like, that's the little things in life. Uh, go ahead, Jeffrey. I'd like to have uh, an expansion port in the uh, ATEM, uh, like uh, Atomos is doing with their Ninja. They have that little expansion. Uh, you put the, the monitor right on top, and then you can switch it. You're seeing that right there and there. And, of course, you have Yolo Box that's really competing. They just came out with a 4 HDMI in box, the Ultra, I think they call it, which it gives you everything right on that screen. And it's a touch screen as well. So if we had uh, an accessory area, something to attach it to, maybe even attach a second ATEM to each other so they, they work in, uh, in, in synchronicity, uh, that, might, uh, that might really help out on there. But uh, the only other thing I can think of is starting to go 4K. Because I think it's gonna, it, we're gonna get to that point where a lot of people will want the 4K. 
Maybe. I think the hard part is is that I mean I would like 4K. I mean I, I but but I don't know how many people need 4K for what they use that switch that mix that switcher for. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I'd like to uh, raise a bounty for the ATEM gray problem. If somebody can fix that; it would be wonderful. Yeah, Courtney. Yeah, something we talked about earlier is maybe a couple of proc amps built in that you could route. You know, maybe at least two of the inputs, HDMI inputs through, or SDI inputs through, to give you a Teranex color correction in the box itself, and it could save those color correction values. In uh, if you save your startup uh, settings, it would save those in local memory, uh, in non-volatile memory inside the box itself. Next question. Douglas Carmichael is here with a question. Alex, what role did the SM58 mics play in the ambisonic test? Uh, the ambisonic... I don't know what... Is this a... Uh, is this one of our tests or somebody else's test? Let's see. Maybe oh. NAB. Yeah, it was uh, the NAB test. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, what we did there is um, for... That's a test from, <laughs> yeah, from my house. So, the um, what we... Uh, the, the main thing there was is that the ambisonic, of course, was providing all the surround channels. So if you, if you think about, you know, the, the ambisonic mic was, was, you know, getting, you know, all the stuff around, but what do we put down the center track? And so, um, what we did is we used the, the SM58s go right down the center channel. And so all the other channels are being supplied by ambisonic, whereas the SM58s are doing the center channel there. And the advantage of that, is that we have independent control over those. And so uh, so we can now have nice, clear audio dialogue um, coming down the track that you would expect it to be. Um, and, and we have control over that. We can decide how much of the ambient that we bring up and down. Um, and we'll be doing more experimentation with that. I did get another... Um Went ahead. Uh, I, I realized that I was getting a little slowed down from doing some of the ambisonic stuff because I was like, oh, I got to get the Scorpio and I got to do the thing and the thing. And so I got, I did get one of these little, um, just to test. I'm actually going to take it out today. It's the H3VR from Zoom, a uh, little recorder um, to record some stuff to it too. So this is also another ambisonic mic. I'll pull the thing off. I will say that the, that the foam fits very tightly <laughs> onto that. Uh, but this is, this is the, uh, let's see if I can get it to hide my eyes. There we go. Um, so that's the little, it's, it's, I'm expecting it to be a little bit noisier not, not quite as nice as the one that I have there, but, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll we're going to play with it a little bit. Um, so I, I kind of want to, it's not a super expensive solution and it's so something that I want to see if we can go out and get some more samples of. So, uh, I'm going to, a a thing uh, in Salcedo, and I, I realized that I can't take the gear. The I want I want to get some ambisonic records, but I can't take the gear that I have uh, to a um, festival. So um, so anyway, uh, next question. Robert Linkram from Belmont Shore, California, on a Blackmagic Design A10 Mini Extreme ISO with a wide shot of a room with people seated at a Civic style layout. Can I set HDMI's uh, number ins one through eight? all as camera one at the same time and individually scale and position camera one to appear as if eight different cameras are being used? Uh, no, but you could use theoretically the DVE and do macros. So you could have macros that say, I'm going to go to a, um, a DVE that had different settings for those. Um, that So you could put it all into the same one. I wouldn't do what I'm saying, but I'm just telling you that you could. Uh, that you could do that um, the problem is your resolution, as you zoom up those things, the resolution is not going to be very good. It's all going to be soft because it's a 1080p input. So you're now scaling 1080p up for each one of those. I don't think that that would look 
particularly good. I think you're better off just just doing one camera. Uh, I know people do this, even when people have 4K systems that do these punch-ins. I know that Mevo and other people have done that a lot. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious that that's what's happening, and you're still getting the same profile. You're not changing the position of the camera. I think it's pretty obvious and somewhat, you know, just feel it kind of, I think it looks cheap. So, so the, um, so I don't, I, I wouldn't recommend it. I'd rather have, I'd rather have some less expensive cameras at different angles than to try to punch in from these different cameras. I, I don't, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a great experience. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah. Whenever I've done, done a room, uh, record, I usually put a PTZ camera either in the center or, uh, poised in a spot where it can see everybody's faces. And then I can uh, do some sort of zoom and some sort of uh, uh, focus on the person. Uh, and I've tried doing the 360 cameras, unfortunately, with, uh, like, for instance, the uh, Insta360. What it does is it sends out a 1080 feed and then has the first sensor on the top, the second sensor on the bottom. You could zoom in, but once again, you're dealing with that this, uh, softness that Alex just mentioned. Uh, but you would get a front-on shot of the person if that's what you're really looking for. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. He's got a question. Have you taken a look at Discord's new warning system, which limits users' behavior based on their violation instead of relying on strikes and avoids permanent bans? Uh, I haven't looked at it, but this is the front. The new frontier is attenuating people's participation based on their behavior. Um, a lot of us talk about this kind of stuff. So, um, and so the uh, so that you know the attenuation of people's uh, participation and their and their inclusion into this overall system based on their behavior is what you're going to see happen all over the internet. You know, like it's going to be the next big thing. And so, what you're not going to see is someone able to broadcast across the an entire network. They're going if they're you know, if they're if they're a bad actor, um, they'll do something rough, and then they'll they're and and this happens now. You don't notice it as much, um, but you know, you may not get banned in some of these social networks, but the influence that you have, how far your post goes in Twitter or in Facebook or in other places, can be attenuated based on your behavior. So if you're a bad actor, oftentimes that those things get. Um, kind of pushed, you know, kind of pushed down. Um, so, so that that's something to kind of um, you know take into account. Um, the uh, so so I think that that's already ha- that's been happening for a while. In fact, there's a there's a an, a very little known thing that's being used oftentimes called a shadow ban. Um, if you get shadow banned in one of these social networks, you see your own posts, but no one else does <laughs> ever. <laughs> so so and and it's and, and what the reason they do that, of course, is they they shadow ban you because. Um, what it allows for is it allows you to, you don't know that you've been banned for a long time and it reduces your uh, likelihood to um, come back and cause more trouble. You know, so so that's the, uh, so shadow banning is something that, do, that doesn't happen too often, um, but it does does happen um, in, in, in uh, systems. Usually the users don't have, you like, Group owners don't have the ability to shadow ban. Like usually, you can't do it as a as a user. It's done at the at the head end, you know, of that of that process. Um, so so that's something to kind of take into account. So I do think that this is probably going to be. You know, we'll see more of, of of this again. People having less and less influence, or not being seen, or not being able to go into certain vertical, you know, certain rooms and so on and so forth because they don't have the right because they've you know proven themselves to be problematic over time. So, so anyway, so we're going to continue to ask your questions. 
in the second hour. So there's not another, there's not a specific second hour. We are doing some tests. You'll see us kind of playing with, um, you know, sometimes you might see somebody's exposure go up and down for a second or whatever. We're kind of noodling with the, uh, uh, with the system right now. Um, and so, and I'm in the back end kind of playing with it. Um, and so, uh, uh, so that's what's happening on Saturdays. And we will probably not do that for a couple of weeks as we do the trans, um, we kind of move our system. The, um, uh, but, it's fun to watch <laughs> to see what we do here. Uh, a reminder that we have a volunteer meeting. If you're an intro to volunteering, is happening right after this meeting at nine o'clock or whenever we finish this meeting at nine o'clock, we're going to do a intro to volunteering. You can find out more information on the email um, there to do that. And I'll put out a little post to make sure people know it's there. Um, and, uh, and tomorrow is introspection. It's usually if you have comments, concerns, things you want to talk about, uh, you can go ahead and throw those. Um, you can come in on Sunday. We don't broadcast that one. So you do have to be in zoom to actually see it. And now we're going to go and jump into the second hour very slowly right now. I didn't do that very well. Sorry about that. I, I, I stopped a little too early. It was like, <laughs> I couldn't quite. And I was like, okay, what else am I going to say? Anyway, next question. Next one in from Narcisse by Faith. And the question is, I attended a conference this week when the staff were using a device to scan QR codes. And it shows participants' details and the attendance number. Any solution that can achieve this hardware and software that does this? I go ahead, Courtney. There's a lot of a lot of database management tools that have uh, barcode input. Uh, here's one I just found recently called Softly Barcode Inventory Management Made Easy, and you can try it out. Download their software, and it uses uh, phone type interface cameras for uh, reading QR codes or barcodes, and uh, you just have to. Uh, create, like we spoke earlier, create your barcodes for badges or whatever with the right information encoded into that barcode. And then the little readers that go on uh, any phone or with a barcode, you know, handheld barcode reader can then gather that data. It's just text data that's stored in that barcode and throw it into a database and sort it and keep it for you. So most database software can now handle uh, barcode input. So any one of those that are available now. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, and this has actually been going on for many years. The last, last time I was working at a live event venue, uh, we were using, I don't remember which ticketing software it was. So basically it was Android or iOS at that time. And then you would have a, uh, they'd come up with on their phone, they just showed the little barcode and then you could scan it. And that gave us everything that we needed. We, we kind of had most of that stuff already, like who it was and how many tickets they bought and where the location all that other good stuff. So it, this has been going on for many years. There's many different programs that do that. Signal to noise ratio is important. So uh, one of the things that you what you you don't really care who came. I mean, I know that people marketing people do, but that's not really what matters. Um, what matters is people who take action. So when you give people options to take action, like sign up for this and sign up for that and, and everything else, um, you know, I I have uh, you know in the '90s I built a mailing list and. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, and uh, maybe 30 years ago, or a little over 30 years ago. And, you you know, it was always actively asking people. If, at the beginning, I had to get people to um, give me their emails, or not, not emails, mail mail. Uh, this was before emails, so this was just, I needed actual, their actual address and their actual phone number and their actual, and I would ask for them for that. And at the very beginning, for the first thousand people, I gave away CD singles. Um, I think the I got my first six or 800 of them from, uh, 
uh, giving away singles of Alice in Chains' Man in the Box. Anyway, so I had I, I, ordered, I used to work for Sony, so I ordered a thousand, a thousand cassettes um, and handed them out if you gave me your, if you filled out this little form. Once it got to a certain size, people would want to be on the mailing list because we what we did with that, and here's the key, is that we, uh, I would not, send out, I did all kinds of little promotions all the time for partners. So these are the record companies, these are record stores, these are bars, the, you know, whatever. We would mail out these little postcards. Um, so real mail that <laughs> we'd have to send out. It cost like 15 cents a person to send these out. It was like my whole budget of my monthly budget was to send these little things out. Then I'd get other people to pay for them. You know, I'd say, well, you got to pay me to, you know, the, the postage. Like literally I just charge postage for it. And um, anyway, uh, it got to a point where everyone wanted to be on it because I wouldn't let you use it unless you gave away at least the 30%. Oftentimes it had to be like 50% off something, you know, or you had to give something away. And sometimes I would give you the things to give away. Like I'd say the first 10 people to go to this record store get a free uh, Toad the Wet Sprocket CD or whatever. And so then people would rush the store and then they would do the, you know, and we'd do all this stuff. And so the cool thing there is that I got to a point where I could fill pretty much any venue at 300 or less and most venues at, you know, up to about five or 600 people at will. Like I could send out a, coast, a postcard and it would fill, you know, like it would just fill up. But that was because I was focused on the people who were taking action, not the people who were just showing up. You know, like, you know, and, and I was, you know, people who are willing to do something. And those are the people that you want to keep your eye on. Um, you do want the other people to be there, but the, the, the people you really want to focus on are people who take action, you know, and so that's the thing to kind of keep in mind. And when you start taking everybody who comes in, Oof, it's just a lot of noise and, and, and you don't, and you have a list that you think is valuable and it's not as much valuable. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Courtney. Yeah, a lot of people are confused by QR codes sometimes. Now, while the QR code can contain a pretty large amount of text, it's not all that, usually it's not all that data that's being stored in the barcode or the QR code, like the UPC, which is the barcode that's on all products these days, universal product code. It relates to a database, a relational database. And uh, the thing that's in the barcode is just an index number. Uh, it doesn't contain any information about the product. That's stored in a major database somewhere. And when you register for a conference, let's say, you'll fill out a form online where you'll give it all of your personal information, and that goes into a database, and it assigns you a number uh, as a you know a customer number, whatever, a relational database number, and that's used as an index into the database. And that's the only thing that really needs to be on that barcode or QR code, which the system will read, and then it has to interface to the database to retrieve all of the data that you entered earlier, uh, and then it, it uh, can read out that or give you a list out of all the people based on those index numbers, not necessarily the information that's stored on the QR code itself. Next question. Next one in from Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada. I thought about getting a ZV-E10, but after seeing the excessive rolling shutter issue from a review I watched, I'm not convinced now. Does the FX30 handle this better? Go ahead, Samuel. Yeah, well, uh, it will handle it better, but there'll still be some rolling shutter uh, because it is a, uh, it, uh, it, it won't uh, completely eliminate it. Uh, but I would uh, uh, recommend to check out uh, Gerald Andan's review. He has a good uh, demo where he shows exactly uh, the, uh, the rolling shutter. Uh, you can see here he's uh, showing it. So there is uh, some, but it's uh, definitely not, it's definitely uh, better than the CV-10. I got Mitchell. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's potentially a problem, depending on how you use the camera. Also, ghosting, so keep a lookout for that. The more you go up the uh, the line of the Sony uh, Cine Alta cameras, like the FX3 and the FX30, you're going to have less of those problems. Uh, and Alex, what are you looking at using it for? Possibly replacing the camera that I'm on right now. <laughs> I don't think you're going to notice any kind of, I mean, no problem. I, I don't think you're going to notice any difference there. I, I think that the, so I'm back to, this is the FX30. Um, I was on the, uh, the, the ZE-10 and here's why I'm, I went back and it's because of the, the lack of a LUT. You know, so I can't load LUTs into the ZVE10. Um, and that is, no, I don't have a LUT on it right now. I'm doing a correction, you know, to it. But I am, um, my next step is to start using LUTs on it. And I just, not being able to load a LUT to it uh, has me go back. Now, what I am looking at doing there is getting, you know, a black magic box that would let me apply a LUT on the way through. And then I can make the final color correction. But my complaint really isn't rolling shutter or anything else. It's really just dealing with the um, with the, the the lookup table within the color. There's some rudimentary color control inside of the, e, the E10, um, but it's pretty basic. But outside of that, I haven't had any, uh, any real issues with it. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I guess if if I'm just going to use it for office hours, it'll be fine because mm -hmm. the camera's never moving. But I guess the, the thing that I've been contemplating is if I'm going to want a, a, a really nice high-end camera to uh, to do other projects with if I'm going to do a short film or something like that. I'm thinking maybe the X, the FX3 is probably going to be a better investment, right? I mean, just it's got a rolling shutter too. Like you just remember that the, you, know, you don't start seeing yeah. global shutters until uh, for a little while. Like, you know, the red, I think the red is the, is the first one that the under, the only under $10,000 one is a red camera. That's, that's global shutter that I know of. Um, so all of those are rolling shutters. So they're all going to have some some issues around rolling shutter. I mean, and, and I don't think that they're dramatically different between them, to be honest. Um, you know, I think that they're, they're scanning it within a certain period of time. Um, and so I think that if you're shooting an action film then the, or shooting out of a car, then the rolling shutter is a big deal. If you are doing what you normally do, with, what we most of us do, normally do with these lower end cameras or less expensive cameras, then it's not that big of a deal. If you're doing lots of interviews, if you're shooting, you know, plates and so on and so forth. But uh, I do think that the next frontier, I think we're going to see all the cameras above $2,500 and below 10,000 in the next five years, I'll predict that it'll all be global shutter because it just, it is, it's enough of a problem. And as more companies, you know, start to apply that global shutter to a, to a less expensive camera, we'll see it more often. Go ahead, Samuel. Yeah, well, I'm using the Sony A6100 now, and it's the same uh, sensor as the ZV-E10, and I've never had uh, any problems with rolling shutter, but I don't uh, like uh, film out of cars or do like a lot of wick pans, yeah. because that I think is the only uh, times when you really uh, have a yep. problem with it. Absolutely, Mitchell. Yeah, you kind of bracketed the uh, range of Sony cameras. I assume you're going with Sony because of autofocus, you know, all that fun stuff. Um, I think that uh, a good choice in that range, I'm using the FX3, and it came out before the FX30. I would go with an FX30 in place of the FX3, particularly how I'm using it. I'm not moving it anywhere. I've set it up two years ago, and it's exactly the same settings that I had from the get-go. So you have no problems. On the other hand, if I'm out running around with my ZV-E10, which you mentioned, um, as long as I'm not shooting through you know, airplane propellers and fast-moving cars, um, I don't have any problem. Go ahead, Courtney. 
Yeah, Mitch just mentioned airplane propellers. If you have anything that's moving in a repetitive manner uh, with a rolling shutter, you're going to see linear distortion in that object. So that's why airplane airplane propellers look like they're bent. Uh, and the artifacts of them moving and re repeating uh, looks like sometimes they're not moving and they're bent, which they aren't in reality. So that's why in uh, machine vision, which is used for, uh, let's say, monitoring a high-speed production line where you want to grab still images of the product as it's scooting down a really high-speed moving conveyor uh, to check label positioning or something. In machine vision, it's very important to have a global shutter because you don't want to see distortion introduced by the movement uh, in the field. So all machine vision is used more in industry than in in. I mean, it's used in, in theatrically, of course, in high-end cameras, but uh, the light, the smaller, lighter cameras uh, have been going to global shutter for that particular reason, to avoid distortion, to have an accurate readout in uh, high-speed machine vision. Go ahead, Alex. What do you think is holding camera manufacturers back from implementing global shutter in these uh, more affordable cameras? Is it just that much cost. more complex to do, and thus they have to cover their own costs in doing it's it? Cost. It's the cost. Oh, and, 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 and sensor. This, well, what, but it's the cost of the sensor, <laughs> you know, like how they're doing the sensor. I mean, it's it's the, uh, you know, the, I think the cheapest one that you can get about six thousand at at six thousand. The cheapest general purpose one, as as was mentioned before, there are scientific cameras that are global shutter that are you know that are a thousand dollars or five hundred dollars. You can't use them in a show because they're weird frame rates and stuff like that. Um, but the um, uh, but the lowest one that I know of for cinema is the Komodo, which is the six thousand dollar red camera, um, and so that's the that's the lowest one that I know of that does global shutter. Um, and uh, and I, it's just cost. And I but I do think that it's going to be worth it at some point, sometime. We think. Go ahead, Samuel. Yeah, uh, cost and dynamic range also. Yeah, yeah. I think that they would give up the dynamic range if they had it, but I think that yeah, you you are right. Um, yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, it's a combination of speed and resolution uh, because it takes uh, speed to process. You got to convert each pixel uh, from analog to digital. Uh, one at a time, and then read them out over a serial interface. And the more pixels you have, the longer that takes. And so to speed that up, you have to have a very high-speed processor to process all that image to get all those pixels in in one frame. Right, and so that's the, buffer. The period of time of one frame and buffering it, yeah. Yeah, so you have to have enough RAM to hold it as well, or some some version of storage to hold it. So there's a lot of, it's not just the sensor, but it's, it's, it is a, a whole subsystem that's required. But I do think that, We'll see more global shutter at some point. Most likely, what will happen is is that next year. Well, here's my big prediction: next year, the iPhone will be now with global shutter, and every every camera under ten thousand dollars will have to go to global shutter. <laughs> like it's because it, it'll be like it'll be that you know because it'll just get they'll just get hammered. You know, if 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 the iPhone goes to global shutter, the they will the, they'll get hammered because people will say, "Hey, my phone does this now." It it, it will be brutal. Like it will it, if if Apple does it, it'll be very very within within within. I'll predict whenever Apple goes global shutter, every camera over over three thousand dollars and under ten thousand dollars will be global shutter within three years because they just can't they they won't be able to compete with that. You won't be able to hold it because it's going to be so hot from processing so fast, and uh, you know uh, the battery will last twenty minutes. But hey. It has global shutter. Uh, I'm not clear that it would take that much more for that. Uh, next question. 
Next one in from Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts. He's launching some apps on my Mac, including QuickTime triggers connecting to continuity camera on iPhone. The selected default audio and video isn't the iPhone, at least in QuickTime. What could be the cause of this? Because uh, I, I think because you wouldn't want it. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know why I wouldn't want my phone to automatically be the input for QuickTime or something if I opened it. I think it would ask you for it. Do you want to use continuity camera? But I don't think I want, I don't think I would ever want my phone to automatically, because that could be very confusing. Like it would grab onto your phone. Your phone is somewhere else in the office and you can't figure out why it's showing. And it may be showing something you don't want to show, like, you know, how you keep your office. <laughs> so, so anyway, so, so I think that that may not be um, an optimum solution. Apple will, Apple's kind of funny. When they do something weird, when it comes to access, it's almost always because of security. They've made they've had they've made some decision that they don't want you to accidentally do something, and so they'll um, and and do something that would break security. So if you if you notice something odd happening, oftentimes with access on any kind of external device with Apple, it generally is because there was a a bunch of meetings somewhere that was not by accident. There was a bunch of meetings somewhere that decided that that was a security issue. Uh, next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, comment on this. Twitch now lets creators simulcast across any live streaming service with caveats and adds doxing and swatting to its off-service conduct enforcement list. Uh, Twitch now lets creators do what they were already doing and were just ignoring Twitch. And now they said it's okay because they can't stop it. That's my comment. <laughs> Next question. From Michal Patrev from Poland, is there a website like Stock Marketplace where I can buy high-quality video, for example, from war in Israel? For example, videos from the BBC or another large television station. Yeah, this is coming from the QR code. Um, the, uh, um, I believe that you know, Getty is one of the companies that, that provides that. Of course, if you have a, if you have a connection to AP, uh, that's Associated Press and Reuters, those are the ones that are usually providing those licensed, uh, licensed stuff, but you ha usually have a licensing agreement with them to have access to that footage. Uh, I'm not sure of other uh, less expensive versions of the stock, but Getty, you know, those are the ones that we see often. Go ahead, Mitchell. CNN, they do it too. Right. So as, but, and, and those are, yeah, those are more direct and you usually have to, um, there's a bunch of hoops to go through. So it's not something you can just usually just grab onto. Um, I don't know right now of anybody, I don't know of any stock agencies that are putting up news or, you know, if it's not Associated Press, Reuters, CNN, or maybe one of the, one, a couple of other, BBC Getty. might actually, and Getty. Getty probably does. Yeah, it. Getty does it. And it's all expensive and it's all licensed and it's all within some levels of control. So, um, outside of that, you know, there's not for high quality footage. I think that that's what you have right now. Uh, next question. Craig McFarlane at Boston, Massachusetts. Watching on HDR days, full screen with my Sony TV, I don't think it's picking up the proper HDR mode. Related settings, HDR mode, auto, HDR10, HLG, HDMI video range, auto, full, and limited, and color space, auto, sRGB, DCI, Adobe RGB, BT2020. Any ideas? Um, well, if you want to set it to manual, um, I would set it to HDR... Um, HDR10, and then you should, I believe that you're going to want to do limited on the video range and as opposed to full swing. And then the, um, uh, the color space is a, a BT2020. So those are, the, those are the things that I would set it in and see how it looks there. Um, but uh, I don't, I guess the other question is, is that, yeah, and I don't, 
definitely let us know because if it's if you're using the internal Sony YouTube uh, app and it's not uh, identifying it correctly, then then let us know and we'll we'll take a look at it. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I was going to ask you a question. Is it only HD? So I'm never able to watch Saturdays because I'm usually in front of the camera. Uh, is it um, only on the live stream or is the uh, replay later, the, the YouTube video that's stored and downloaded? It's both. It's, it's both. both. Um, yeah, and, and it, the HDR10 in 5.1 has been available for um, other things for a long time. It, it is the, it's the HDR10... Uh, through live that's new in the 5.1 and so those are um, uh, yeah so that it it's different though so if you watch it live we're finding that the look of it changes if you watch it right after the show it'll look a certain way if you watch it six hours from now it will look a little different and we're still trying to figure out why you know, but there's a when it does the encode when it does the reencode for the final version, it appears that it's a slight it's it's shifting the colors for the better. So the the post version seems to look better than the than the live version, and we're still trying to figure that out. I will say that I feel like, and people can let me know what they think. I actually feel like the the HDR version doesn't look quite as good as the SDR SDR version when we're doing pure SDR for SDR, um, but it it's pretty close to being acceptable. So I do think that by, you know, we're going to do some tweaks, but by the end of the year, I think that we will definitely, I will admit that I'm making, I'm going to look at it. I, I haven't been able to look at, look at myself during the show, but I will look at it later. Um, I know I'm making adjustments. I've softened, I've added more softening to mine. Mine looked very, um, uh, it was falling off very fast and it looked very kind of like a, like a hole. And so I'm playing with the, 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 the brightness even, evenness between my background and my foreground. I took one light out of the center and then pulled the other lights further away to soften that. You know, so I'm kind of playing with what does this look like and I'm taking advantage of the of the Saturdays to figure that out. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, if you also have a set-top box like an Apple TV 4K, one of the things that I found, uh, which is there's two important settings in there, the match dynamic range and match frame rate. And I find that on the YouTube app on Apple TV, it, it I can see the switch happening because the screen flickers for a little bit and it does engage the correct HDR, HDR mode. It does look fine for me at least. Yeah, and I do the same thing. You know, I, I have mine, I actually, uh, yeah, I, on my TV, I have it set to match frame rate um, every time. And I might even have it, mine might actually, mine in, in my, at my house, mine might actually be locked at 24, but I don't, I'm not sure. Um, I think it's set, set to proper frame. The, the reason for locking 24 is that 99% of all the content that comes out of the Apple TV is, I mean, for everything other than YouTube is, is 24. Uh, next question. Chester Sweeney from Las Vegas. Nevada with a QR question. By the way, the outdoor grill party I was filming, I found the smart rig with two handles, one for each hand or easy switching, attached to be the best for up-close grill shots. Yeah, and this is coming in from the QR code. And, and I think that this was, I think that there was another question that may not may have made it through about filming at a grill. Um, and uh, I think what he's talking about is a small rig, small rig with handles on both sides. Next question. And it's Roz McNulty from Vancouver, Canada. I want to know a source for white curtains for a commercial mocap studio. I want to improve and contain the lighting. Any advice? I don't have to be sound reduction fabric. Alex mentioned Rose brand. So motion capture is an interesting problem. Um, and so white curtains, so what it looks like over 
the question is, is with with white curtains, do you want um, if, if motion capture? You can't have those those curtains be reflective to alt, to infrared for most most motion capture. If you're using a standard infrared motion capture system, and I don't I don't know what you're using, but if you're using something like um, the OptiTrack or or Vicon, those are living inside of an an infrared world, and you're going to want to be careful about that. It does you can get white that is the color white, but infrared black. And so the way to do that is you got to get a camera. They make little cameras that are infrared cameras. Um, I, and, and I, I haven't had to buy one for a while, but you can take that to a, to a, um, you know, there's these supply, you know, these, um, uh, I don't know what they're even called, uh, but I just know where they are, <laughs> but they, they have just, you know, it's a warehouse full of, of fabrics. I'm sure Roz knows all about these because she makes clothes. So, so the, or designs clothes. And so, so Roz, you go to one of those and you, you have to look at it through the infrared and you may find that you find rolls of fabric that are, um, that are, that look white but are black to the camera. And that's what you're looking for. Um, so that if, if that's what you're trying to do with the motion capture, um, if you're trying to control light, I, if, you're not, if you're doing it with some kind of optical motion cla- capture, then that's a whole different problem that I don't know. So ask another question there and we'll, we'll try to suss that out. Um, Rose brand is where we buy a lot of stuff. The, the thing that you want to look at is buying samples. Again, if you're doing it with motion capture, you have to buy samples before you buy what you're going to get because it may not look black or white or whatever color it is to the infrared camera and you want it to look as dark as possible and we have found ones that look black and literally look white when you when you put them over the under the infrared and that's not going to work to put behind your mocap and so we've had ones that then look black and then look jet black to the to the infrared and those are going to create a lot more separation between the 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 infrared uh, reflectors that are on your um that are on there and and the um and the everything else around it go ahead courtney yeah, follow what Alex said about the infrared reflectivity for for uh, that's mocap specifically, but for uh, rigging it, uh, you probably want to have a cyclorama track, which is a aluminum extruded aluminum track that has curves in it, and then they have little rollers that uh, you hang the curtain from so that you can roll it in and stretch it out and roll it back if you don't need it. And a lot of times they they make them for television studios and for theatrical stages. Uh, And a lot of times they'll have uh, two or three tracks deep, so you'll have a black curtain and a white curtain that you can roll into position and they stay hanging in the corner and you just roll them out on the tracks, so that makes it easier to deploy. And Rosebrand, you can literally give them a design and they will give you back, the, they will send you back, this is how much the track will cost, they'll send it to you in pieces and you can put it together. Uh, have a contractor do it. <laughs> because it's, if it's not perfect, it doesn't run very smoothly. Um, next question. Paul Wallace at Austin, Texas, asking, uh, what's the specific make and model of the iPhone rig used in the Apple commercial? What impact will this ad make? Uh, this is the one I think it was a woman on a street that's that's going there and it, it looks like one of the small rigs. I don't know exactly. It's not the small rig that fits directly around the camera. There's a they make a slightly larger one that the camera can attach to the bottom with handles and attachments and everything else. But it definitely looked like the small rig one that that we saw in the Apple ad. I did go through that frame by frame to uh, figure that out a while ago. Uh, next question. Andre Dole from Berlin. Alex, speaking of bad LED studio backgrounds the other day, how do you like the background of the Al Jazeera studio? Seems to be displaying instead of LEDs. I really like the zoom effect of the background footage. 
Uh, I will have to um, take a look. I haven't seen the Al Jazeera studio for a while. I know that some of the older Al Jazeera studios definitely did um, did um, displays, and the reason that they tend to do that is because they many of them tested LEDs, especially when they built their studio. They tested the LEDs, and the LEDs were um, back then not high enough resolution, or, or or the pitch depth was the pitch was too large. So what we find is that if you're going to be anywhere near an LED, 1.5 mil pitch is about the max, 1.7, 1.5. And really you're trying to get down to a millimeter or less. You can't curve the screens at that level because the, the pitch is too high. The, between panels, you, there's no room. So, um, so the, so that I think that, that the, uh, for a while, people were trying to do these LED walls, and they did do them at 2.3 or 2.6. I mean, that's what you see with like ABCs for a while was that way at least. And they look horrible. They look just horrible on on air. And uh, and so I think that Al Jazeera made a better decision with some of their monitors. I know that they did that in the past. I haven't looked at it in probably the last couple of years. Um, but I'll, I'll take, a, take a look. Uh, next question. And it's from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Cardboard boxes. Do you use them extensively for storing your equipment or do you recycle them? Uh, I do a bit of both. Uh, I keep a, a fair number of them. I use a you know I use a box cutter and I just cut where all the tape is so that I can fold them back up again and I'll keep them at different sizes. So if something looks like it's a different size, I'll kind of compare. I've got a big stack of them because um, I hate looking for boxes. Like, oh my gosh, I have to send something out and I can't find a box. So I... So I'm, um, I do keep a lot of, a fair number of them, but once I get to, you know, three or four of each size, um, then I tend to, uh, dice them up and put them in my, my recycling. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah. For all, for storing paper records, I use banker's boxes or, you know, uh, cardboard file boxes that you can get at any Staples or Office Depot. Because, uh, when it comes time to offload them after 10 years or 15 years, I just take the whole box to the shredder and it just goes into the giant shredder and goes, <laughs> chews it all up and turns it into pulp. And I stand there and watch it. So I make sure that they're not taking all my old banking rep- records and putting them up on the internet. Uh, so security is an issue. But for storing equipment, I use uh, uh, hermetically sealed, if I can, uh, a tub, plastic tubs that you can see through. They're plastic so that I can see at a glance what's in each of those things stacked up on the shelf. Uh, and easily, when I'm looking for something, I don't have to go shifting through and unstacking stacks of stuff to see where that one little device I'm looking for is hiding. You go ahead, Mitchell. When I'm not stealing boxes from the United States Postal Service, I try to use uh, egg crates, egg crates, what am I saying? Milk crates uh, to store stuff. Boxes generally uh, fall apart and become messy and they're homes for vermin. Next question. Next one in from Roz McNulty in Vancouver, Canada. Again, the same question. It's more to transform the studio for photography. For 3D scanning, we were just using a motion capture studio. Thanks for the information about the infrared. I wouldn't have thought of that. I will check my fabric shops. Um, yeah, for 3D scanning, I think that the main thing, that's a, that's a, that's a great question because um, I'm... I would highly recommend playing with the 3D scanner that, that Apple has released. Uh, the, their um, reality uh, compo- composer uh, is free, and you can it'll do scans. Uh, it is. Um, uh, I do. I am trying to figure out how to build like a little rig that lets you. Now, one thing to know, Roz, if you're trying to do something really large, then then you do what you want to think about is something that's translucent. If you're really trying to do a scan and you want to have it all be diffuse lighting, think about building a box. And because of what you do, Roz, I think that you're probably looking for something that's 
full sized so that a person can walk in with some clothes that need to be digitized. Um, and I think that in that case, what I would look at is trying to build something that had translucent white. So you're not reflecting off of the white, you're actually shooting from behind it. And then you're going to get a big soft box kind of look for that person. And that's just going to not have any directional light to it unless you, that's what you want. Um, and then, <laughs> but that, that would let you have a nice big soft um, system. I think that might be, might be what you want. Uh, let, let us know. Next question. Next one in from Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. FaceTime, Google Meet, or Facebook Messenger. Which do you prefer of these populist conferencing apps? Go ahead, Mitchell. None of them. I don't. I don't like any of them. Um, it's bad enough uh, to have to, you know, do FaceTime like uh, Alex was talking about earlier. Uh, but uh, I'm I'm sort of like a Zoom man. If I'm going to do a uh, commit to a conference, it's going to be done over Zoom. Yeah, I do it over Zoom or I do it over um, uh, phone. But I don't. I don't. There's very almost zero in between. Um, yeah. Uh, next question. Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California, need to go SDI into an ATEM and HDMI out to monitor. Would you get an ATEM Mini Pro and an SDI to HDMI converter for the input or get an SDI ATEM and an SDI to HDMI converter for the monitor? No other inputs or outputs are needed. I would get the SDI ATEM um, because it has more outputs. So it's got four aux, it's got four outputs instead of two. Um, and it is, so if you're doing some conversion anyway, and if I'm going to do a conversion, I'd rather convert to the monitor than convert my source signal. So I would rather have the source signal be uh, what I need um, and then have the monitor get the conversion. Next question. Paul Wallace is back from Austin. What's the best computer, microphone, and camera to connect to the HP Poly P21 all-in-one conferencing package? Or is the native camera and mic good enough? Uh, I very much doubt the native mic and, and, and camera will be good enough. Uh, so I think that you're probably looking at whatever camera you want it to look like. You know, so uh, you could look at a Insta360 link or a, a, an OBSBOT. Uh, you could also go up to something that like the EV10, EV10 um, or Z10. You can, you know, as far as mics go, we all talk about these all the time, but I don't, I very much doubt that um, the, the Poly P21 is going to provide video and audio that is not going to add cognitive load to the system. So there you go. All right, there we go. Another Saturday. Uh, we did some HDR testing. Uh, we did a little bit of uh, 5.1, uh, and, and I'm going to be uh, hopefully shooting some. I'm trying to get my whole little kit together to do the, you know, I keep on finding, oh, I'm missing this one piece, and I'm missing this one piece, and then I got sick. Um, and so uh, so hopefully this, to, this weekend I'll shoot some stuff, and we'll start working on the countdown clocks <laughs> that, I've been, that I've been promising. Um, and uh, so I'm going to try to shoot some of those this weekend. The um, but But you'll see us kind of keep on tweaking it. Again, uh, we'll... November is going to be a little bit of a transition month for us as we kind of figure out those things. It's going to give us an opportunity to test a couple of different platforms and figure things out. Um, and uh, so, so that's we're, we're kind of excited about that. Um, and uh, so, so stay tuned for more of that as we as we move forward. Um, but if and but it's been a good test. It's been really useful so far to do the HDR. And as soon as we get back, we'll be doing a lot more of the HDR tests uh, throughout December. Um, and uh, we're looking at moving to HDR 5.1 permanently January 1. Um, now we may move that, but but I I don't right now I don't see any roadblocks for us to kind of move over to to that platform there. Um, and that's the next step for us. And then the step after that is going to be we're really talking about this kind of dual. So having our entire substructure 
set to for to 4K 5.1 HDR is the first step. Then the next step is how do we handle contribution feeds to give them higher, make them higher quality than what we're getting from Zoom, and so that'll be the next the next frontier for us. Hopefully, over the next uh, three or four months after that, is to figure out how to do that. And and so we don't, you know, we have some ideas, uh, but uh, at that point, I think that the cool thing is is that all the tests that you're seeing on Saturdays is pushing towards a talking head show that is higher quality than any talking head show in the world. <laughs> like, like, you know, it's a, you know, and, 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 um, and, and so that's, you know, there's something to say, say for that. Uh, and, uh, but what it really does is sets up a platform for us. If we want to show, if we want to talk about HDR, if we want to talk about, uh, surround, if we want to show things from a, from the field that have these things, we're able to do that seamlessly because we're not trying to build up a pipeline to make that work. We're doing it every single day. Um, and doing something every day means that we get, we get good at it. It gets boring, you know, as opposed to something that, that is hard and, and so on and so forth. So, um, anyway, and then we help kind of nudge the, nudge the world forward, you know, to, you know, past the old, the old ways of thinking. So, um, anyway, so that's the, you know, that's, that's the goal. Thank you so much to the panelists for coming in on a Saturday. We can't do this without you. Uh, thanks to the um, to the producers for all the great questions that got us through the first hour and the first half of the second hour. Um, and thanks to the incredible crew on the back end, seven days a week making this happen. Uh, we really appreciate it. And you know, we, I just want to thank all the people on the dev team and other people coming out of the woodwork and, and everything else saying, hey, you know, like helping us with figuring out how to do the move. Um, we really appreciate that. And so um, it's, it's going to be a kind of a group effort as we as we make that change. We shouldn't, you know, miss a day. Uh, quick reminder that we also have a volunteer meeting at nine. Um, so we'll be back at, at nine o'clock. Uh, you should be able to find that information in the, Mitch, is that in the, that's in the volunteer area or I'll, Here's the deal. I'm going to post it. So if you're listening to this, I'll I'll post the link to it um, in just as a general announcement to everybody, and then we'll so everyone knows that it's there. And then we can. This is just an intro to the intro to the volunteer. So if you're if you wonder what volunteering is and you're trying to figure that out, then you can you can come to that meeting. That's in 24 minutes. So it's only it's just coming right up uh, at, at the end of that. Yeah. So. All right. Uh, we traveled um, 94,000 miles. That's 151,000 kilometers. And that is 746 million bananas for scale. All right. Let's go ahead and jump into after hours. I bet you this banana looks great in HDR. It blows wow. up my TV on HDR. Boom. It's neon yellow. Yeah, yeah exactly. We got to think about those things. It's like a laser sword. Laser beams. Yeah, no one had a yellow-colored lightsaber. I wonder why. <laughs> Not taken. There's a story behind every color, by the way. Is that a good story, though? That's the question. Some of them are just the actors said, I want mine to be chartreuse. Sounds like a URL to a Zoom meeting. 